This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had took, all he had, and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came... 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Do not be alarmed. We're not going to try and cover all of Luke 15 today. This is actually the second week of three um, that we intend to invest in this very famous chapter of the Bible. Uh, in fact, today I want to uh, really unpack verses 11 through 24. It's the well-known, it's the dearly loved, it's the so-called uh, parable of the prodigal son. Now, of course, the term prodigal is not found uh, in the biblical text, uh, but prodigal means this, to spend freely extravagantly and recklessly. And so prodigal is an accurate description of this uh, younger son. But before we jump into the parable, I want to remind us of a few things we learned last week. I want to remind you of why I would have the entire text uh, read yet again this week. So first, when we're thinking about Luke 15, we have to remember that we're seeing uh, it as one unit. That Luke 15 is one unit that we're going to unpack in three sermons. If you uh, had the text open in your Bibles, you could look up to verse 3, and you could see, uh, yet again, like we said last week, that Jesus said, so uh, he told them this parable, singular. So, so Luke presents all of chapter 15 as one discourse, as one unit of teaching, and the one unit of teaching is in response to verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 tells us that tax collectors and sinners, the dregs of society, the 'er ne'er-do-wells, the the spiritually rebellious and the religiously hated, the tax collectors and sinners, they were drawing near to Jesus. And and so John Gotti and Pamela Anderson and Lady Gaga and Hugh Hefner were approaching Jesus. In verse 2, Jesus scandalized the most influential Jewish leaders of the day. He wrapped his arms around the sinners and he socialized with them. And it says in verse 2 that the Pharisees, they kept grumbling uh, against Jesus. They grumbled in Luke 5, they grumbled in Luke 7, they grumbled in Luke 15, they grumbled in Luke 19. And so, so in response to their grumbling, verse 3, so Jesus told them this one parable. We spent last week looking at the first two stories of this one parable. And the story of the lost sheep is verses 4 through 7. The story of the lost coin is verses 8 through 10. And in both of those stories, Jesus tells the Pharisees, as they're grumbling about him receiving sinners, he's telling them, you don't know the half of it. Not only does Jesus mercifully and graciously receive sinners with forgiveness, but Jesus, more importantly and primarily, pursues, values, has compassion on, and loves sinners. Long before his ministry developed into one of receiving sinners, he intentionally and incarnationally pursued sinners with the forgiveness and the grace and the peace and the hope of the gospel. So in response to the the grumbling, excuse me, of the the Jewish religious leaders, uh, Jesus tells three similar stories. In all three, something valuable is lost. In all three, the lost is diligently sought after and found. And in all three, the find and the found are celebrated in community. Think about it like this. In the first two stories, the story of the sheep and the story of the coin, Jesus tells the story from the perspective of God who who goes out and who finds the valuable item that was lost. 
In the third story, the so-called parable of the prodigal son, Jesus tells the story from the perspective of the human, the one who is lost but found. Okay, so with all of that, I'm going to need to allude to it at times in the sermon. With all of that, we're going to unpack this famous parable of the prodigal son this way. Being lost, a picture of a sinner. Being found, a picture of a repentance. Being celebrated, a picture of heaven. All right, let's get started. Being lost, a picture of a sinner. So quite, quite simply, uh, the text teaches us this. Here's, here's a definition for sin. Sin is a deadly, self-centered desire to be away from God. A deadly desire to be away from a relationship with God. A deadly desire to be away from the directions that God gives on how to live the life he's given us. So in verse 2, Jesus is accused of receiving sinners. He agrees with the accusation. Then he tells a story of a sinner, verse 18, being received. And then the picture of sin is verses 11 through 16. Let's look at it. Verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. Okay, now, by the way, we're going to talk about the older son uh, next week. The older son represents the scribes and the Pharisees, and we're going to give an entire week to that reality. Verse 12. And the younger of the two sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. It is really hard to convey how disrespectful this was uh, to make this request. Uh, The son is essentially saying to his dad, I want to live as though you're not alive. I'd like to live as though you're gone. In the culture of Jesus' day, it was possible, it was very unusual, but it was possible for a man to distribute his estate to his sons before he died. But when it would happen, uh, the sons would own the property. They would own the assets. They, they would own um, the land and the plants and the animals and the buildings. But the father would continue to own the income off those realities. So anything that the plants produced, anything um, that the land produced, anything that the animals produced uh, would be regarded as the father's. And so in Jesus' story, end of verse 12, the father agreed to divide his property between them. In the original language, in the Greek, there's this indicator of how incredibly disrespectful this is and how incredibly painful it would have been to be the father. It literally reads this way. And he divided his life, his bios, where we get biology. He divided his life between them. The younger son wanted to live life away from the father. Okay, so this becomes obvious in verse 13 if you keep reading. Not many days later, so he had a plan all along. Not many days later, he gathered all he had, so he liquidated the assets, and he took a journey into a far country. And again, while unusual and incredibly disrespectful, it was possible for a son to sell the rights to the property he had before his father died. Because the father would maintain the income off of those assets, the the property was usually sold on pennies uh, to the dollar. So sold for incredibly cheap. End of verse 13. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Loose, riotous, immoral living. Sin is the deadly desire to live away from God, the deadly desire to live unencumbered by the directions he provides for how to live the life he's given us. The young son, verse 30, devoured the property of prostitutes. The Bible acknowledges the fact that sin is incredibly pleasurable for a season. The Bible acknowledges the fact that sin will provide a quick hit of happiness. 
And of course, it is uh, that reality that tempts us to move away from God. It's that reality that, that tempts us to disregard his directions on how to live life, thinking it was so fun, and maybe if I do it right this time, it'll be more fun for longer. But, but not only does the Bible acknowledge that sin is pleasurable for a season, the Bible clearly warns that sin is a deadly desire that in the long run will end in ruin and destruction, disintegration and death. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything, by, by not working and by reckless living, a severe famine arose in that country to be distinguished from the country of his father. And he began to be in need. Verses uh, 15 and 16 are gonna describe a man in an incredibly tight spot, a man in dire straits, a man in desperate circumstances. One commentator put it, puts it this way. It's simple, but I love the imagery. He, he says that Jesus describes a man on the edge of the earth all alone, as close to death as possible while still being alive, completely and utterly lost. Verse 15, the younger son is enslaving himself. He's literally gluing himself to a citizen of that country. And the citizen literally thrusts him into the most degrading of all jobs for a Jew, feeding pigs. Verse 16, he lusted. The deepest desire of his heart was to either be full like the pigs were full or to actually eat what the pigs were eating. Slop, trash. He is in a tight spot. He is in dire straits. He's in a really difficult place. But end of verse 16, even though he longed to be full, even full of trash, no one gave him anything. This is a picture of sin. It's a deadly desire to be away from the God who gives life. It's the desire to be away from relationship with him. It's desire to live as though he is dead. It's the desire to push aside all the directions that God gives on how to live the life he's given. Uh, it's a desire to have pleasure for a season. But over the long haul, sin ends in death. Sin ends in lostness. Now, a quick commercial for next week, because so far we might be thinking that sin is to, de is to devour uh, property uh, with prostitutes, okay? Quick commercial for next week. We're going to study the second half of this third story. And I labeled this first point, a picture of a sinner. I did not label it the picture of every sinner, especially for us in this congregation. Broadly speaking, there are two ways of sinning two ways of being lost. There's the irreligious way, like the younger son, who in the story is lost and found. But there's the religious way, like the older son, who at the end of the story is still lost. Irreligious sinners, like the tax collectors and, quote, sinners, sin by disregarding God and his laws. Religious sinners, like the Pharisees and their scribes, sin by obeying the law so they can disregard God. Sin is to hate relationship with God. Sin is to not want what God wants. Sin is to not value what God values. Irreligious sinners don't value God's law. Religious sinners don't value God's grace. Both are big, fat, nasty sinners. Both don't want any relationship with the God of the Bible. And both are in desperate need of repentance. The Bible just clearly says that irreligious sinners tend to repent a lot faster than religious sinners. Any sin, whether religious or irreligious, is this deadly desire to be away from God and to be away from his ways. Maddie was 
three and a half, and Riley was two. Maddie's my oldest daughter. Riley is my second oldest daughter. And they began a long friendship with the men who collected garbage in our neighborhood in Lakeland. Uh, the, the girls would hear the garbage truck, and they would hear it rumbling down the streets, and they would yell with excitement. They would, they would make a beeline to the front porch, and they would vigorously wave at their friends. It would be like 6.30 in the morning, and the neighbors would hate it, but the driver would honk the horn. Uh, the men on the back would smile and wave and yell. They had a real friendship going. It actually got to the point where my girls w- would draw the men pictures And the trash collectors would, on their time off, come by the house and give the girls gifts, like $5 gift books to McDonald's. One morning, Riley was still in bed, and uh, Maddie heard the truck. So Maddie goes to the, the, the bottom of the stairs, and she yells up to the top of the stairs, Riley, trash! That was the code word. Now, in their minds, they were calling the men trash, but I, I want you to know that uh, they didn't mean any disrespect by it. I want you to imagine this next part in your mind's eye. I'm in the living room below the girl's bedroom, and I hear Riley's heavy feet hit the floor. I hear her squeal with delight, yell at the top of her lungs, trash! And the next thing I hear is her tumble all the way down the entire flight of hardwood floor stairs. And she just lands at the bottom like a pile of rocks, not moving. I don't mean any disrespect to the men who love my daughters. And the truth, of course, is that Riley wanted to go see not the trash, but she wanted to see her friends. But if you could just get that imagery in your mind of her running with excitement, yelling trash as if she was going to go and hug the trash and then crashing down the stairs. Jesus says that's a picture of sin. Verses 11 to 16, we think it's going to give us life. We run to it as though it's going to satisfy and it kills us. Sin, a picture of of sin. In our sin, we move away from God, any encumbering that we think he's going to bring. But tragically, because he by definition is the giver of life, we move away into death and destruction, disintegration and decay. Verses 11 through 16 are the picture of being lost. Jesus says, this is a description of the sinners that I pursued for 15 chapters and now I'm beginning to receive because I've created a culture for them to come to. And without diminishing in any way their responsibility and their guilt, without in any way dismissing the the grotesqueness of the man's life and and the reality that he brought so much pain and disrespect and hardship into the lives of others, without diminishing that reality, Jesus says, this is why I have compassion for the miserably lost. He says, that's the picture of sin. That's the picture of being lost. But next, Jesus gives a picture of repentance. Repentance picture of being found. If you look in verses 17 through 19, or if you look in verses 11 through 24, for that matter, you're, you're not going to see the word repentance. But if you'll remember that all of chapter 15 is one parable in three stories, it should become really obvious to us that this is a picture of repentance. Just engage your minds for a second. In verses four through six, Jesus tells the story of a sheep being lost, sought, found, and celebrated. When Jesus gives the punchline, if you will, when he gives the moral of the story, if you will, he says this, verse 7, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy, celebration in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. He's talking about religious sinners there. We'll talk about it next week. 
Jesus does not say that uh, what we might naturally expect him to say at the end of the parable. He doesn't say there's joy in heaven over a lost sheep or a lost human being found. He says there's joy over a sinner repenting. And so what he's showing us is being found and repenting are in some way interchangeable. Okay? Same is true of the second story. Verses 8 and 9, a coin is lost and sought and found and celebrated. And again, Jesus in verse 10 says, not that there's joy in heaven over a sinner being found, but that there's joy, there's celebration when a sinner repents. Again, interchangeable concepts, being found and repentance are are interchangeable. And Jesus is the master storyteller. He's getting us ready for the third story. He's preparing us for the repentance of the prodigal son. These two are interchangeable in this way. From God's perspective, the lost is found verse 24. From the human perspective, the son repents, verses 17 through 19. Repentance is what the human experiences when they're found by God. Repentance is what the human experiences when they're found by God. So what is repentance? What is this being found? You know, of course, that Jesus, uh, his ministry, his preaching ministry was summarized by the gospel writers as two words, repent believe. Half of Jesus' sermon. So what is repentance? Uh, The Bible teaches very clearly that, that Christians grow through an ongoing, habitual, and deepening life of repentance. So if this is a picture of repentance, if this is how we enter into the kingdom, if this is how we grow in the kingdom, what can we see about repentance from this parable? I think four things from 50,000 feet. An awareness of separation and damage, a returning to the Father, a confession of sin, and a plea for mercy. Let's look at it together. I'm going to just fly through and show you these four. Let's reread the story. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, that's that's a, that's, a, that's a phrase for repentance. That's a phrase for coming to life. That's a phrase for God turning the lights on so he can see reality. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish. It's literally the word lost. But I'm lost here with hunger. So first, repentance is this awareness of separation. It's an awareness of the damage done by our sin. Second, Repentance is a returning to the Father. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my Father. Okay, the word for repentance, like in verse 7, for example, the word for repentance in verse 10, for example, most simply means to return. Keep going, verse 18. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. So, So awareness, returning, and a confession of sin, and owning of rebellion. Finally, verse 19. A plea for mercy. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as, as one of your hired servants. So we hear hired servant. We think that he's thinking that he's going to get back on his father's good side, that in some measure he's going to try and pay his father back. I would say that's most likely not the case. In fact, I don't think there's any way that's the case. He's already said that he, uh, that the, the hired servants at his dad's place have more than enough bread. He's already said that he's starving. He, he's wanting to go back and ask, he, he's wanting to ask for life. He's actually asking for radical mercy and asking to be a hired servant. The fact of the matter is, both in the Old Testament and in the ancient Near East culture, uh, both of those realities would have called for this man to be stoned as soon as he stepped into the town, killed for the dishonoring of his father. He's all alone. He's on the cusp of death. He's at the edge of the world. 
He's returning in his repentance. He's not asking to pay his father's back. He's asking to not be put to death. He's asking to be given bread. He's asking, he's begging for mercy and life. A picture of sin is the rebellious desire to be away from God, which unfortunately brings death. A picture of repentance is coming to our senses, returning to God to confess our sin, to seek out mercy and life. Friends, let's just stop for a second and let's make sure we don't miss the really big point of the entire text. This is not a spoiler. I think everyone in the room knows where the movie is going to end. The son is going to get mercy and he's going to get grace and he's going to get compassion lavished upon him as a sinner. Don't miss the big point. Repentance and only repentance was the experience of the younger brother that brought him into the great festival of the father's love. Repentance and only repentance was the experience of the younger son that brought him into the great festival of the father's love. In Luke 13 and Luke 14, Luke is pounding home the fact that you cannot get into the father's presence unless you enter in through the narrow door. What that means is this, you can't take anything through the door with you. All you can take is yourself, not a promise to do better, not a list of things you've done right along the way, uh, and not any sort of pretense or lie, just yourself. An awareness of your sin and a plea for mercy. At that point, we fit through the narrow door and we're in God's gracious presence. Maybe you're investigating Christianity and you're beginning to realize, like every person in this room, You're beginning to realize the mess that you've made of your life and selfishness and pride. Maybe you're at that big turning point of your life. I remember that day vividly 20 years ago. Maybe though, maybe you're not investigating Christianity. Maybe you're just like me and you've been walking with Jesus for years and you still see selfishness and pride and sin in your life. Maybe, like me, your sin is still, all of these years later, making a mess of your life. Maybe like me, maybe like now, maybe like yesterday, your anger has damaged your kids and sent you into isolation. Maybe like me, lust is still damaging uh, your relationships, making you and those you objectify less than human and crushing your spouse. Maybe like me, you're out of control in your eating. You're out of control in your attempts at finding life and food, and you're only making yourself tired and grumpy and lifeless. Maybe like me, you exhibit self-control in regards to food or lust for a day or a week or a year, and you feel superior to others and better than others. And maybe by devaluing grace, we find ourselves isolated and all alone. If we find ourselves here, either at the big turning point of life or at the daily turning that defines the Christian life, let us not miss the big picture. Repentance and only repentance is what it takes to get into the great festival of the Father's love. Not a promise to do better, not a list of things done right along the way, but a naked request for mercy and grace. A walk through the narrow door into God's gracious presence. Finally, for this morning, being celebrated, a picture of heaven. 
So we already know in general, at least, how this is going to end. Let's look at some particulars. Look with me, verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. So Jesus wants us to see in our mind's eye, the father, maybe on the front porch, if they even had such a thing in those days, he is constantly scanning the horizon day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. He's waiting for his rebellious and scandalous son to come home. And while he was a long way off, the father was the first to see him. And Luke gives us this window into the father's heart. When he locks eyes on his son, not hate, not disgust, not judgment, not complacency, not ambivalence. Verse 20, he felt compassion. And the father ran a humbling and incredibly shameful act for an older man in the ancient Near East. And he embraced him and he kissed him. Literally, he fell on his neck and he kissed him fervently. There's two words for kiss in the New Testament. One describes that that ordinary greeting between two strangers, but the word used here is the word for a passionate kiss, and it describes a variety of settings and a variety of relationships, but no matter what, it means to kiss again and again, to kiss fervently, to kiss much. The son, through his rebellion and his pride, his self-centeredness and his folly, he caused great harm and great damage and great dishonor to the father, and this is the welcome he receives when he comes home. Verse 21, the son repents, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And of course, this is true. The son has the worth of a rebel and he should be stoned. And you and I know as listeners that the son has not said all that he wants to say to the father. He's planning to say, treat me, make me like one of your hired servants, which again, it would be an incredible act of mercy had the father agreed to do even that. But the father cuts him off. He doesn't let him finish. The father is so overwhelmed with love and delight, verse 22, but the father said to his servants, Jesus is the master storyteller. The audience in that day and age is expecting to hear the word servant from the mouth of the son. But the father cuts him off and he tells his servants to go and get everything we're gonna need to treat my boy like a son. Go and get everything we're gonna need to treat my boy as a beloved son. At the end of verse 19, the original audience is wondering, we are deaf to this parable because we've heard it so often, but they're wondering, will he take him back? Will he spare his life? Will he give him the mercy of being a hired servant who gets to live? And Jesus says to them, you can't even begin to fathom the depths of the mercy and the grace of God. Not a stoning, not a lowly servant, but a celebrated son. Warm your heart by the fire of the gospel, verse 22. Bring quickly the best robe and clothe him with it. The best robe uh, in, in an estate was the robe only worn by the guest of honor at a feast. Put a ring on his hand, ring symbolizing the authority of his father. Put shoes on his feet. Slaves and servants were not allowed to wear sandals. Only sons of the father were allowed to cover the shame of their feet. Verse 23, meat was rarely eaten in this culture, and the calf was kept well-fed, ready for slaughter, just in case something great and momentous happened. No delay in starting the party. Will the father shun him? Will the father look down on him? Will the father berate you but keep you around to live in shame? Will the father throw the first stone at you when you repent? He devoured a third of the father's property with prostitutes. The father makes him the guest of honor. 
and celebrates him. Let the festival of the father's love begin. Verse 24, for this my son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Don't forget the context of Luke 15. Jesus is here describing heaven. Jesus says in verse seven that heaven rejoices, it celebrates, it parties when a sinner realizes that they need to repent. Not only that, verse 10, God himself rejoices and celebrates and parties. Not when a sinner realizes they need to repent, but when a sinner, a singular sinner actually repents. This is a saying, a famous rabbinic saying in the time of Jesus. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. And Jesus is saying to the scribes and to the Pharisees and to the religious sinners, hell no, no way, absolutely not. Nothing could be further from the truth. He parties, he dances, he sings when a sinner comes home in repentance. I beg you, whether you're at the great turning point of life or whether you're at the ongoing life of turning that is common to Christians, run to the festival of the Father's heart. Not with promises, not with pretense, but in repentance. Naked, empty-handed, owning sin, seeking mercy, repentance. And heaven, yea, God, will celebrate when you walk through the narrow door. Last thought for the morning. How can we know for sure? How can we know that if we strip ourselves of pretense and promise and performance, how can we know that he's gonna embrace us and fall on our neck and kiss us and wash us and clothe us and enjoy us and bless us? What if he decides to not be so large and magnanimous and gracious anymore? What if he changes his mind? Is God allowed to change his mind? What if we run to him and what if we throw ourselves at his feet in utter humility and we say, you know what? We're not worthy to be called your children. What if he says you're right? To hell with you. See that right there? That's the reason we don't go. It sounds awesome for somebody else, but what if he changes his mind about me? You can know and I can know that we will be treated like the prodigal son because Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. And God is not a liar, and he is just, and he is fair, and he is true to his word. Whether you're coming for the first time in repentance or the millionth time in repentance, we can know that we're gonna be clothed because the beautiful Jesus was naked on the cross. We can know that we're gonna be given shoes for our feet because they took the shoes off his feet to drive through them spikes and nails. We can know that we're going to be fed the fattened calf because the righteous Jesus was hungry and famished on the cross. We can know that the Father is going to celebrate us and receive us as though we're righteous because Jesus, as our sin, was forsaken and abandoned. We can know that we'll have a thousand kisses upon the neck because our loving Father allowed Jesus to be fervently kissed by Judas, his betrayer.
if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to the gospel, every other major world religion teaches that only those who bring something with them get into the blessed presence of the divine. Only Christianity teaches this. Only those who strip themselves of everything get in. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. Whether we're coming to you for the first time or the millionth time to repent of our sin, we thank you that you lived perfectly for us, that you died in our place, that you have made entree into the Father's presence by repentance alone. We thank you that you have done everything necessary to save sinners like us. Jesus, we thank you that you did not go 99% of the way, but you went 100% of the way. We thank you that you didn't do almost everything, but that you did everything. And then you died for us. The only thing left to do is repent. But God, we know that, that this repentance, that this turning, that this trust, that this faith, that this is a gift from you. We beg you to give it to us. We beg you to lead us in it. We beg you to teach us and show us how. Holy Spirit, would you please come and would you show us that our religion is just as gross as irreligion? Would you show us that we want to be God and not be in relationship with you as God? Would you show us that we're destroying ourselves and others in our sin, that we might hate it and turn back to you? Jesus, we pray that you would take this story that is so well known by us and make it fresh to our ears and feed our souls. In your name we pray. Amen.